Um, and like Robert also said, I work at Amherst College with InterVarsity. It's a campus ministry organization. Raise your hand if you're from Amherst College. Yeah, what up, peeps? Um, if you're, yeah, if you're a kiddo, that's happening. Um, it's like sixth, sixth grade and under. I think everyone, you're good. Cool. See you guys later. Um, so yeah, I, it's an honor to get to open God's Word with you today. And if you've, well, let me back up. Like Robert said, I am married. I'm married to um, the woman who's my wife. And uh, her name is Katie. She's over there. Don't look at her. She'll get embarrassed. Um, but this amazing thing happened like, like, uh, like 15 months ago or so. We got married. And it happened in a moment, right? Like we, we did the, the whole planning thing. And then um, we showed up and... In a moment, we got married. Like, we were mysteriously, by God's Spirit, united, made one flesh in a moment. And it was a fact. It was, like, legally true. Um, it, was, it was part of my identity that I was her husband. I was Katie's husband in a moment. And yet, still, I didn't really know what that really meant. And there's been a process of becoming Katie's husband, even though the fact was true in that moment. It, over the past 15 months, that identity of mine has become, been becoming more and more real through repetition. So every morning I wake up next to her, and I tell her that I love her, and we eat meals together. We've had countless meals together, and we've shared conversations. And the truth is that by repetition of all this time together and being in love together over time, my identity as her husband has become more and more real. If you've been with us in the book of Deuteronomy, I think that's kind of the place where we're at here. Let me explain. So we've watched as God has saved the Israelites out of slavery, out of Egypt, and said, you are my people, and placed his covenant love on them. And he's bringing them into a new, a new place of living. He's going to give them a new land. He's, going to, he's, he's giving them new ways to worship. And all of these facts are true about them. And we see in this text in Deuteronomy 12, God is outlining for them the practices by which they're going to practice and authenticate their identity as God's people. They're going to start to live into and understand what it means to be God's people, just as they have in the desert, but even more so as they come into the promised land. And so... In the scripture today, we have a really important outlining from God of, of practices by which they're going to understand what it means to be God's people. And so that means that if you're a Christian in the room, this is really pertinent to you. This is outlining for us what, what it looks like to be God's people and what it would look like to grow into our identity as God's people. And if you're not a Christian in the room, lucky day for you, you get to hear what it would look like for you to become a Christian, what it would look like for you to be one of God's people. And so I am really excited. This is kind of an obscure passage. I probably wouldn't have picked it for myself. But this is God's word. And we're going to encounter it together and understand what it means to be God's people. So I'm very excited for us. Like Robert said, we're going to discover that we are people made for worship. And we're going to discover what it looks like to worship God. Um, so let me read the scripture again for us, and then I'll, I'll pray for us. Actually, let me pray for us first, and then I'll read the scripture. I invite you to bow your head and pray. And actually, as we sit in this moment of silence, would you first pray for the person on your right and your left, that God would encounter them in this time? Pray for an open-heartedness for them. I want to also invite you to pray for yourself, that God would make you soft-hearted to his word this morning.
I pray that God would use this to encounter you in the places where you don't expect. Lord, I pray for myself as I speak today. God, I'm in full recognition that I'm a sinner and that I have no authority of my own. So Lord, I pray that, that you would speak, God, that you would speak your words to us. Lord, we ask that you would send your spirit in Jesus' name to be applying this word to our hearts, that you'd be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text is Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 through 14, and it begins, if you have a Bible, flip to it. I'm going to be referring to it a lot, so I think it'd be helpful to have it open. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites as they're about to go into the promised land. Um, and looking ahead, knowing that God is going to give them peace and going to give them a new promised land, Moses is outlining what it will look like to worship, and he says, but when you go over the Jordan and you live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male servants and your female servants and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that I'm commanding you. So just quickly where we're going with this is that God is defining his people, telling them how to walk in his ways, telling them how to become his people, and there's three ways that he's, that he's defining his people, and we're going to get to them, but they are, one, that they would have a rich theology of sin and how to deal with it. The second is that they would hold in high esteem making God's name known. And the third is that God is inviting them, commanding them even, to be joyful. He's inviting them into deep joy. They would have a rich theology of sin that they would hold in high esteem the task of making God's name known, and that they would be a joyful people. So what happens right after this text is the people go into the land, they, um, they conquer it by God's grace, and then they start to establish cities. And if you've been with us, you know that there's, they're carrying around with them the Ark of the Covenant. This is the very dwelling place of God. And so as they move into the, the Promised Land, the Ark of the Covenant is placed at Shiloh. And they start to offer sacrifices like this. So this is the place that God does choose, is in Shiloh. And for over 300 years, they're offering sacrifices at the place that God chooses, which is in Shiloh. Then they lose the Ark of the Covenant in a battle. You can read about this. It's in the Bible. Um, they lose it in the battle. They win it back. And the Ark moves to, finally, when David takes it back, they move it to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem becomes the place where they're offering sacrifices. And then Solomon builds the first temple where the, it houses the presence of God, and the Holy of Holies is there. And, um, and that's where they offer sacrifices for hundreds of years. Then they go into captivity, they come back, they rebuild the temple. The point is that they're carrying out this command for centuries on end. So this becomes a foundational commandment for what they understand as being the people of God. They, they follow this commandment even until the temple is destroyed in 70 A.D. A.D., hundreds of years later. Temples destroyed in 70 AD, and this is why the Jews don't offer sacrifices anymore because they don't have a place. They can't follow this commandment, and so the sacrificial system of the Jews is no longer in place because they're trying to be obedient to this commandment, and there isn't a place for them. So this is a foundational commandment for Jews understanding what their identity is and how they're supposed to be the people of God. And the first way that it shapes them is that it builds their theology of sin and how to deal with it. Simply put, they took their sin very seriously. 
You can see it in the text, right? Um, they're offering sacrifices at least yearly, usually at least, actually, usually at least three times a year. They would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for sin. So this is in verse 11. To the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings to the Lord. That word sacrifices likely stands for at least two different types of, of sacrifices, of, of atonement for sin. So this is part of the theology of sin. They would offer trespass offerings, and that's, that's sacrificing a live animal, so killing an animal, at the altar of God to pay for a specific sin that you, they've committed. So this is in recognition of the fact that I have defrauded my neighbor, I've stolen in business, I'm going to kill a goat or a ram to pay for that sin because something has to die for the sin. There has to be justice for the sin. So I stand condemned because of my sin and because of that specific sin, this animal is going to die for that specific sin. That's a trespass offering and obviously you can see that it, it builds into them, the, the, into their DNA, the thinking that sin deserves death. That something has to die for sin, to pay for it. That God is a righteous judge and that sin will be dealt with. That's a trespass offering. But in addition to trespass offering, there's what they call generally a sin offering. And this gets at a much deeper concept for what sin is. This goes actually far beyond what our culture identifies as sin. This is not just specific, specific actions that are sinful, but this is starting to deal with their very nature as sinners. This is the, they're, they're trying to deal with the fact that they could never actually call to mind all the ways that they've rebelled against God. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at when he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there's a way in which beyond their actions, they understand that I'm just not good enough for God. Not just the way that I act, but my very nature is fallen. My heart longs for things that aren't God. My worship is false all the time. And you can imagine if you're, if you're doing the trespass offerings and trying to think of specific th sins, you go back through your week and try to think of specific sins and offer them up to God, you'd come to a place where you'd think, oh my gosh, my condition is worse than just the sum of my symptoms. Right? Like beyond just the bad, I can't even think of all the bad things that I've done. So this, this trespass offering is getting at that notion that in my very nature, I'm prone to sin. I actually love sin in parts of my heart. And so they realize that they're standing condemned before God, that a sacrifice has to be offered in order to make atonement for their sin, not just for the things that they've done, but for the ways that their heart is, for the very condition as sinners. This is what Robert was hinting at last week when he talked about how God doesn't just want to treat the symptoms of a heart attack. And actually, it would be foolish if you started to have a heart attack, you get symptoms like your arm starts to hurt, you get a headache, you get dizzy. It would be, it'd be foolish to, when your arm starts to hurt, take Advil or painkillers, right? Like, no, you have a heart attack. You need a heart transplant. This is getting at that idea that your sin is, is beyond just your actions. There's a condition of sin that the Israelites are building, that God is building into the understanding of sin for the Israelites. Can you imagine the power of regularly acting this out in community? of regularly gathering your things and your family and your household and going to the place that God has decided, whether it's Shiloh or Jerusalem, and saying in community, we are sick beyond our capacity to fix it. We're sick beyond just the symptoms. We have a condition that is requiring death to pay for it. We deserve death in our very being, in our very nature. We are needy before God. 
And we're actually like offensive to him in our nature. In Ephesians, Paul calls all human beings, by nature, children of wrath. We exist in a sinful state. So God is establishing a culturally enacted understanding of sin that says we are more sinful than we can even bring ourselves to admit. We can't even properly acknowledge all of our sin. And more than that, our sin is going to be called to account by a righteous judge, that God doesn't just forget sin, willy-nilly. Good judges don't just forget crimes. So this is yearly, and often more often than that, a community reminding themselves together, something needs to die for us or we will die. That we need to get right with God through the death of something else. And they're following God's commandment on how to make it right. So actually, in addition to saying we're not right, they're also saying that God has made a way for us to stay reconciled to him, even though we're sinners. That God has made a way for us to be in community with him, even though we don't deserve it, by offering sacrifices. So when something dies in our place, we can be reconciled to God. There's that community-enacted way that they're doing this over and over again. So they, they say we have to go to the place that God has ordained that he's appointed to deal with our sin because our sin needs to be dealt with. So let's go together as a people in recognition of our sin to the place where God deals with sin, to the presence of God, where he's going to take care of sin, where he hears our prayers. You see that, that rich theology of sin? God counts, he knows sin, not just in our actions, but in the depths of our heart, but also that God has provided a way to pay for it. And there's this community acting this out over and over again that builds into the DNA of the Jewish people this rich theology of sin. That's the first way they're being shaped by this. The second characteristic of being God's people that he's enabling them to learn is that they would be zealous for the name of the Lord. Uh, You see this in the text um, in 11. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose. Why? To make his name dwell there. Biblically, the, the idea of the name of the Lord uh, is, a, is larger than we typically think. It's, it's sort of like God's brand, but it's more than that. It's, it's all, that, all of God's character, right? all of his attributes, so um, all-powerful, self-sufficient, loving, merciful, just, fully, fully like knowing everything, knowing all of our hearts. It's all of God's attributes and characteristics, but even more importantly, it's all of God's attributes and characteristics to us. It's the way that we experience him. So when the Israelites know the name of the Lord, when they have this Yahweh Elohim, there's a way in which they're, they're saying, this is God to us. We know you. We have a relationship with you. And so when God says that he's choosing a place to make his name dwell there, it means that he's, he's choosing a place to display his character, both to his people and to the world. Um, so God establishes this ritual because he wants to make his name known to his people and to the entire world. And actually, you can see this is an incredibly profound foundation for this practice, right? God, the basis of all of this, of walking to Jerusalem, of like offering sacrifices, is because God wants to make himself known to his people. He wants them to know his name. He wants them to understand his character. He wants to see them to see that he's loving and just. And he actually wants, the, he wants them to participate in the making of his name known. So you can imagine... Uh, them gathering their families, right? They're like All the neighborhood gets together, the whole household with the servants and the, the campus minister, the Levite, who doesn't have an inheritance, who doesn't have land, but just lives off um, the friends. And um, 
they all gather together and they all go with all of their with train of animals, or maybe they're bringing a bunch of money to go buy animals. And the point is that this would be a witness both internally and externally that God, the God of the Israelites, is worthy of costly worship. Actually, yeah, again, you can see it in the text. If you look at um, the list of things that Moses tells them to offer, in verse 11, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings. Just tithes, that stands for 10%. So 10% of all that they have, that's just tithes. That's one of the five or six that he mentions. A burnt offering was when you would go and burn an, an entire animal for God, saying, God, all of this is from you and for you, and we're giving it back to you. You don't eat any of it. It's just gone. An ox or like a ram or a bull, those are expensive items in the ancient world, right? This is costly worship, and that's just tithes and burnt offerings. In addition, they're, they're killing animals from their flock for sacrifices, for sin. There's also a grain offering for sin, it's way more than a tenth. You can see that this would add up fairly quickly. And it's a witness, again, in, internally and externally to the, to, the, to the Israelites and to the world ab, ab, around them that their God is worthy of costly worship. Yeah, it's, uh, but more than that, I think it's also a witness to the people that they don't have to hoard resources, right? It's a, it's a generous giving of all that they have to the Lord saying, we're not worried about our well-being because you're our provider. All this, like I said, is from you and for you. We have nothing to worry about. All of this is yours. You can almost see the surrounding people saying, like, those Israelites are weird, but they're, they're definitely not stingy in their worship. Like, look, look how much they give to their God. They make that journey over and over again. It's costly, and it's a witness to the world. And actually, I think the outside, the external peoples would say, it doesn't even look like they're doing it just out of fear. Look at the, the nature of this. They're traveling. They're singing songs together. Most, a, a lot of the psalms are called psalms of ascent, and they were sung by the people as they marched up the holy hill to Jerusalem. So they're called songs of ascent. They're ascending. And there are these joyous hymns. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Raise a trumpet to the Lord. So the, the people were marching all together to go meet with God in a joyful way, but there's a laying down of their resources before the, before the throne of grace in a joyful way. There's a joyful surrender that's happening here that was an internal and external witness. So the third characteristic of the people of God as outlined in this text, it's actually somewhat natural, understandable. What do you do when the only sovereign judge of the universe has dealt with your sin? you rejoice, right? Look at the, look at the text, um, verse 12. And you shall rejoice before the Lord, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your town since he has no portion or inheritance with you. God is saying, grab your whole household and we're gonna have a party. I'm gonna reconcile you to myself and then we're gonna throw a rager. Can you imagine how awesome this was? As a community, enacting this sort of, this DNA of understanding ourselves as the people who need to be right before God, but God offers mercy. The judge of all is for us, and we get to know his name. This sort of communal procession, going up to be reconciled to God, singing hymns to him, and then they offer the sacrifices, and then it's just party time. 
God, God's love and favor is on us. Can you imagine whole communities together? This must have been awesome. I actually think that it's a foretaste of what heaven will be like when the people of God are saved from sin's presence, when we're in the presence of God, fully reconciled to him, when we can see him with unveiled face, when we look on our God who saves us. Can you imagine the party? It's going to be unbelievable. I can't wait. So God is making them into a people who, one, understand the weight and consequence of their sin, two, who are zealous for the name of the Lord, who lay down costly sacrifices so that God's name would be known, and third, who rejoice that he is for them, that he desires to make himself known to them. So sitting in this room right now and recognizing that that's what God did with the Israelites, you have to ask the question, why is God having them recite the script to themselves? Why is God ingraining this in their DNA? Why is God building in culturally enacted worship that will teach them these things? Think of it, like for centuries without interruption, and then with interruption, but then centuries again, they're doing this all together as a community, gathering their resources, going to meet with the Lord, proclaiming that they are sinners, but that he justifies, and then having huge parties, bigger than your best block party, over and over again for centuries. Why? The answer is because someday God is going to write himself into the story because God is coming to them and he wants his people to recognize him when he comes. Actually, God gives hints about this all throughout the Old Testament. Um, he, he said, he's, he, you can, actually, you should read the Old Testament through that lens of God pointing forward to the day when God was going to deal with sin. I pulled two texts, but there are many. In Jeremiah 31, God says to his people through the prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by my hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God is saying, giving hints throughout the entire Old Testament, that the day is coming when sin is going to be dealt with finally. Again, in Daniel 9, this is a prophecy spoken through the angel Gabriel to Daniel, while in Babylonian captivity, pointing forward to the sacrifice that God is going to make, he says, to finish finish transgression. God is going to end sin, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. God is building into their DNA an expectation. He's having them, he's teaching them to live on tiptoe, as it were, to look for the salvation from the Lord. Preparing them for centuries to look for the final sacrifice at the most holy place that God is going to choose for himself. And this time it's not goats or rams or bulls. It's far more costly. Far more than 10%. See, just as the Israelites were to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to deal with their sin, the divine Son of God made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to deal with our sin. And God wanted his people to take notice all throughout history, pointing signs 
to the fact that God was going to bear sin and put an end to iniquity. See, Jesus laid down everything on our behalf. He laid his very self on the altar and was poured out for us. He paid the punishment for sin that our sin deserves. Though he was sinless himself, offered himself as a sacrifice for our sin, the perfect lamb of God. God himself reconciling us to himself so we don't have to offer any more sacrifices to God. Amen? God is reconciled to us in Christ. There's nothing left to do to clear our name before him. He's done it himself. All we need to do is come to him needy and empty-handed, looking for forgiveness in life, saying, God, for the sake of your great name, forgive my iniquity. And God says, blessed is he whose sins are not counted against him. In other words, happy are we when our sins are not counted against him. Guys, here's the truth. God is, even today, saving a people unto himself. He's building a nation, even now. It's different than it was, but in some ways it's similar. It's still a people who understand the weight and consequence of their sin. People broken for the ways that they're actually deeply needy. God and can't fix things just by moral management. That we're sinners beyond just our mere actions of sin. We're sinners because of our propensity to sin. So we're a people who understand the weight and consequence of our sin. We're also, we are called to be a people zealous for the glory and fame of our God who lays down costly sacrifices so that the world would know his name, his character, We are to be a people who trust in no other provision for well-being or for reconciliation to God. We are to be a people of every tribe, nation, and tongue so that his name will be proclaimed and treasured in all of the earth because it's too small a thing for our God to redeem just the people of Israel. We are to be a people that would proclaim the name of God in all the ends of the earth like like Jesus told us to. And what could proclaim the name of God more vibrantly than the voice of God himself saying, it is finished on the cross. Your sin is atoned for. There's nothing left to do. That word, it is finished, um, was commonly used in, uh, in prisons, actually, or in like debts, um, like in accounting. And when you would serve in a, in a prison, you'd have your rap sheet, all the bad things that you've done that you're serving time for on the wall next to you in the prison outside of the cell. And so it's a stealing six years or maybe 10 years. I don't know. I'm not sure. But all the things you did and then the punishment that you were supposed to pay for them and they'd be listed out. And when your time was all paid, when you fulfilled the punishment that was required to pay for your sins, they would stamp over it this Greek word, tetelestai. This is the word that Jesus cries out on the cross. To tell us die. The sin is paid for. The time of punishment is over. There's therefore now no condemnation. So all who are in Christ are allowed to go free from your punishment. It's paid for. Walk out of the cell, is what it's saying. God has paid it all so that people all around the globe, from generation to generation, will know that our God saves sinners by sacrificing himself. That our God has purchased pardon for sin at great cost to himself and is offering forgiveness to sinners. 
We are to be a people who have come to the one place where sin is dealt with and atoned for. And how could we, as these people, be anything but joyful? Think about it. The one judge has counted us righteous, and we didn't have to offer anything for it. He made it happen. He reconciled us to himself by, totally by his own free love and grace to us. And all we, all we have to do is walk in that. So we are people who are supposed to experience the most profoundly joyful surrender to God in response to God's sacrifice for us to lay down costly sacrifices that his name would be known in the world. This is why we sing that song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. I give everything for his name. We are to be a people zealous for his glory. There's a parable in Matthew 13 that I love. Uh, It's it's called the, the treasure in the field, which you're probably, you might be familiar with, but it talks about a man who comes upon a treasure in a field and he digs it up, sees, oh my gosh, this is amazing, treasure in the field. And it says he, he buries it, goes home, and with great joy sells all that he has so that he can purchase the plot of land and therefore acquire the treasure. The, the key phrase to me is that he does it with great joy. With great joy sells all of his possessions and to the people in the, in the village, like, he's like smiling, singing as he's selling everything that he has. He must have looked so foolish, right? But he knows there's something of greater value in the land. And so I'm giving up all that I have in order to lay hold of something far more valuable. So there's a way in which this kind of costly sacrifice can look foolish to a world that doesn't know the treasure that we have. And yet we're called to lay down everything because we're taking hold of something better. Not that our sacrifices save us, but because God has given us something so good in his own sacrifice for us that we lay down everything in order to let other people know about it. So three quick suggestions by way of recommendation um, or by way of application for these truths for us as, we, as, we, as I close here. Um, the first is that if you're not a member of God's family, if you're not one of God's people, uh, first I want to say that I think you're in exactly the right place. And I don't mean Mercy House. I mean in the presence of God. So as Christians, we believe that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And as a community, when we come together, God's presence is with us. Amen? And so if you're, if you're not a Christian today, if, if you don't know what it feels like, the joy of being reconciled to God, you're in the right place because you're in the presence of God. And in a community that is experiencing the Holy Spirit, Jesus is here. And so you've come to the one place where sin is actually atoned for. Not at this altar, but at the altar of grace. Jesus actually offers forgiveness for sinners. Your sin doesn't have to hang over you forever. You can be freed from sin's penalty, sin's power, and ultimately from sin's presence. And so you're in the right place because Jesus is here. So I want you to to know that if you place your faith in Jesus you can be forgiven. That God offers free forgiveness for sinners. Not because we deserve it, but because he's good to make his name known. So I want to say that if you've been trying to make yourself presentable by God, by following rules, or by offering other sacrifices to God, or to try to make God favorable to you, you need to place your whole faith and trust in God's provision for sin. In Jesus. In the reconciliation that that Jesus offers, the atonement for sin that Jesus offered on the cross. 
You need to know that God has offered him himself on your behalf so that you don't have to make yourself worthy. And actually that God desires for you to come to know him and to worship him. Some of us in this place need to trust for the first time in the sacrifice that Jesus has offered for sin. So if that's you, I want to encourage you to do that. There's deep joy in, in this type of surrender. I would love to talk with you about what that looks like. Um, and I would encourage you, if you're feeling a stirring in your heart to give your life over to Jesus, to place your faith in Jesus for the first time, don't leave here before you get right with God. God offers free, paid-for forgiveness in the person of Christ. The second possible application for the Christian in the room struggling with guilt or shame or thinking that God might not love you because of the way that your condition is or even like the symptoms of your sin. You need to hear the truth that God has once and for all paid for sin. That sin has been atoned for. That it is finished. That God's blood is effective to cover sin. And actually, you might need to divest your hope of other ways of provision for sin. Religion won't save you. Attendance at Mercy House won't save you. Moral management won't help your condition. What will help your condition is the person of Christ and the sacrifice that he offers. The truth is that nothing in the world can make you right with God but God. But once you've placed your whole heart and soul in God's hands by Christ's merits, there is no condemnation for you. So if you're a sinner Christian struggling with being a sinner, know that there is no condemnation for you. You need to go back to the most anointed place, the one place where God has dealt with sin once and for all and hear that Christ has forgiven your sin. And if you are a Christian who's experiencing the joyful surrender of being a person of God, I want to remind you that you are called to lay down costly sacrifice that his name would be known in the world. It is our call, our mission, our aim, our joy to make him known at great cost in the world. And actually, as, as the Christians in this place, together with the other Christians in this place, it is our task now to make him known in this valley, in your workplaces, in your friend groups. You are to bear witness to the glory of God in your place. That is why God has saved you right now. To bear witness to the glory of God. Yeah, I want to ask you, could you say with the Apostle Paul before he went to Jerusalem, uh, they were urging him, his friends, fellow Christians were urging him, don't go there, you're going to die. We, we know that the end for you is death. You shouldn't go. You should stay here and not preach the gospel. Paul says, Acts 21, 13, I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. I want to ask you if that's what your life looks like. I know that's not always what my life looks like. Is it true that people would say of you or you would say of yourself that the chief aim of your life is to magnify the name of the Lord in your place? Challenging. Um, but I have to ask you, can you imagine what would happen if we Christians became a people so radically and recklessly generous with our time and our resources, with our homes, in response to God's provisions for us, that people in the valley started to take notice? What, what would it be like if we were so radically and recklessly generous that people couldn't understand 
why we were laying down such costly sacrifices. And actually, one very practical application for us, um, we've, we've done this at Emerson, it's been very fruitful, is we've encouraged each other in the, in the coming week to do an act of such generosity with time or resources or just love, service, that's so, so radically generous that someone takes notice and asks you, why did you do that? And then offer the gospel to them. Say to them, because God has so richly provided for me that I don't need to hoard resources. I want to encourage you to do that. Do something so radically generous and giving out of an overflow of God's grace for you that someone takes notice and asks you, why did you do that? And then share the gospel with them. Say, because God has so richly provided for me that I don't need to hoard resources. Try it out. We've, we've seen it work. It's awesome. It's, it's, um, yeah, we've seen people actually come to faith because of it. I think there's a way in which, as Christians, we're being called in this, in this time, in this place, um, to witness to God in more than just word, right? In more than just gospel proclamation. Uh, the, our culture understands truth very much in an enacted way, right? Like, um, through acts of service, we can validate the goodness of God, right? When we, give, when we give over costly sacrifices for the name of the Lord, I think our culture will take notice. So I want to challenge you to do that. So in a minute, um, we're going to take communion. And the reason for that is because we are a people being built. We, we, are, we have been made a people, reconciled to God, and we're becoming God's people even still. And so this is one repeated thing that we do together to remind ourselves that we are sinners in need of grace, that God has made himself known in our community, and we are late to lay down costly sacrifice for his name in joy. And so if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to be reconciled to God even this morning, encouraging you that, that God has made provision for your sin and wants to have a relationship with you. And so if that's your situation, first of all, I would encourage you to become a Christian. But the second is that as we do communion, um, we ask that you not take communion. So this is for people who have been reconciled to God and are celebrating and joy the reconciliation that Jesus offers. So if you are a Christian, come in joy to this table, recognizing that God has made full atonement for your sin. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you made a way where we could not. God, that you redeem us and save us from ourselves and from our sin. And Lord, we thank you that you've also given us a mission to make you known. Lord, we pray that, uh, that you would impress on us the truth that there's no more sacrifice to be made, uh, that you have made a way, and to give us, to call us deeper into joyful surrender for your name. We love you, God, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.